Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today addressing one topic, the great victory by the teachers union in Los Angeles. A victory not just for them, but for public schools and the very idea of a public sector. First, we'll hear from Alex Caputo-Pearl, president of that union, United Teachers Los Angeles. And later, we'll hear from a frequent guest in this show, the writer and organizer Jane McAlevey, to draw some lessons from this strike. Public education is under attack across the U.S., and not just by right-wing Republicans. Over the last couple of decades, Democrats have also embraced the full agenda of education reform, like charter schools and lots of standardized testing, a pseudo-scientific way of evaluating both students and teachers. Along with these initiatives have come deep austerity at all levels of government. Last spring, we saw rebellion against these strategies in conservative states like West Virginia, Oklahoma, and Arizona. And now that movement is spreading to the Democratic stronghold of California. Despite the Dems' dominance of California politics, ed reform has been on the march in that state for some time. A center of the fight has been in Los Angeles, the second-largest school district in the country, where per-pupil spending is disastrously low. That low spending has partly been dictated by the property tax caps imposed by Proposition 13 passed 40 years ago. In the face of those funding restrictions, L.A.'s plutocrats have pushed the ed reform agenda hard. L.A. elite spent $10 million on behalf of charter school advocates in the 2017 school board elections. The pro-charter school board appointed Austin Butner, who made a fortune in private equity and then retired to philanthropy, politics, and education reform, as superintendent of the city's schools. As you'll hear, he and the board released a report in 2017 called Hard Choices. That report said the city was spending too much on teacher salaries and benefits. Among the points of comparison that led them to this conclusion were Oakland and Denver, cities themselves that are now on the verge of teacher strikes. L.A. teachers were sick of it all and struck, and they won. Here's Alex Caputo-Pearl, president of United Teachers Los Angeles, to tell us more. Caputo-Pearl, who spent more than 20 years as a classroom teacher, took over as president of the union in 2014. He will be joined by Jane McAlevey towards the end of the segment. And thanks to Jane for arranging the interview with Alex Caputo-Pearl. What do you attribute this victory to? You had a very hostile board who basically wanted to destroy the union. Like, So how did you win this one? Uh, old-fashioned organizing. We've spent the last few years really building systems and structures among our members and among parents and community organizations. And we were in a position by the time we went on strike, we had all 900 schools ready to go uh, with contract action teams at just about every single school. We had uh, regional structures that we had parents and community involved in. And then once we went on strike, the issues just touched a nerve publicly and tens of thousands of more parents and community got involved. And uh, we were able to push with a huge amount of momentum. Uh, could, you, could you talk a little bit about both those things? First, uh, what kind of internal work did you do within the union over the last few years to get this going? Well, we started pretty quickly. We came into office in, in the summer of 2014. One of the first things we did was uh, we won a good contract within the first eight months of our leadership using an organizing approach, which members liked. We then used that to do a dues increase where we got 80% of our membership to vote to uh, increase their dues by 30%. And we built a, an organizing department, a parent community department, a research department, and a political department and bulked up our communications department with that dues increase. And then we just did the methodical work of building contract action teams at every school so that the chapter chair was surrounded by several other leaders at the school. We formed a community coalition called Reclaim Our Schools LA, 
which has been very important in terms of community organizations, but in many ways, more importantly, we've trained our staff and our members in reaching out to parents and using their own identities. I mean, many we've got 70% women in our field. Many of them are, are mothers, uh, grandmothers. And so using their own parent connections and community connections to just create the possibility for when a strike hit, blowing up quickly through all of those systems and structures. So really, this was the work of four or five years. Absolutely. And then the public, you started talking about that a bit. So how did, you know, obviously a, a school strike, I can speak from experience with my, when we had a school bus strike in New York, it's very difficult for parents. So uh, it's a bit of an uphill fight. So how did you win the parents over? We were frankly overwhelmed and moved by how how much support came out of the woodwork from parents. And part of that is attributable to the years of work we did to set ourselves up so that, so that we had parent leaders in every part of the city. And we had many of our members identifying as parents connected within their communities. So part of it is attributable to that. But, but really, the explosion of support among parents was because of the issues, class size, lack of nurses in schools, lack of counselors in schools, a growing awareness about the privatization issue where increasingly parents of students at, pub at public district schools were seeing charter schools co-locating on their campuses, taking dance studios, taking parent centers, et cetera. We were able to frame the narrative in a way that really touched a nerve uh, among parents. And so, I mean, our picket lines, I mean, I'm sure you know this, the first four days of our picket lines were in the pouring rain. Yeah, that's not supposed to happen in L.A., right? And our picket lines were so damn strong. We were so proud. And just tens of thousands of parents on the picket line with us, the, the attendance in school was about 20%. And most of that was because parents were identifying with us and not wanting to go into school when we were on strike. It's quite amazing. And you also had huge crowds in front of City Hall. I, I assume that helped. Three out of our first five days, we did we did midday marches and rallies in downtown L.A. All of them were over 60,000 people. So yet people literally taking off work, obviously our 30,000 members, and then a whole bunch of other people taking off work to be there. So it, it sent a message of real disruption to the school board and the superintendent. Now, were you able to present this to the public also as a fight for the quality of public services? You know, you're faced by organized billionaires trying to undermine the public school systems, but also as part of a war on public services in general. Were you able to make that broad point to the public? We were. We've really. So, for example, we, we used, I'm sure you're very familiar and probably are one of the architects of uh, the bargaining for the common good approach. We brought to the table over the last two years issues that are not typically brought to the bargaining table. And we did that through a series of youth, parent, and community forums two years ago, two and a half years ago, where we identified issues that they wanted brought to the bargaining table. So, uh, for example, one of the things we brought to the table to address environmental issues as well as school issues is the idea of forcing the district to remove unused bungalows from school campuses and replacing them with green space. And we actually were able to win that in this strike with the city committing to provide more services to build up green spaces, tear up asphalt at schools, remove bungalows, and create more gardens and green space. That's one example. We also, given the lack of support, and there's never enough services for uh, immigrant parents, 
Uh, we also put forward the proposal that the district and the union collaborate on creating an immigrant defense fund where we would use charitable drives and, and also some of our funding to raise money for school district parents who are faced by attacks on the immigration front from the Trump administration. We were also able to win that. So we actually very formally brought those to the bargaining table to highlight austerity and its impact beyond schools. And we were able to win some things. So we're very proud of that. And what were the highlights of the victory for you in the settlement? Class size was huge. The biggest class size issue for us in LA is there's a provision in the contract that's been there for about 20 years that allows the district to blow through class size caps that are in the contract. So essentially for 20 years, the district has never had to pay attention to class size caps, even though they're written down in the contract. So we got rid of that. That was the last thing that was on the table holding everything up. Um, and they finally let it go, which is which is huge. So now class size caps, where they are now and where we will drive them down to as the struggle continues over the next years, they will be enforceable, which is huge. Second, on class size, we developed a program, which is really the first time LA has seen this in years of driving class sizes down. It's gradual. We get that class size when you've got 900 schools is expensive. So it does have to be gradual, but driving class size down by, it'll end up by being down by about seven students um, over the next three and a half years. And then we keep the fight going uh, beyond that. What's the average class size now? You've got class sizes of high 30s into the 40s, high 40s. Uh, so there's some, there's some outrageous class sizes right now. So driving that down over the next three years is going to be crucial. Uh, another huge victory was we got permanently in the contract language around a nurse at every school full time. We got language in the contract uh, around a librarian at all secondary schools and a counselor, a student to counselor ratio of 500 to one. Right now, they're around 800 to one. So these are really, really significant things that are going to cost the district some real money. There were other victories around uh, charter schools. We got some language around how district public schools and our chapter chairs will be represented and have voice when charter schools come and co-locate on their campuses. Uh, so that was huge as well. There's a variety of different issues, but those are some of the key ones. Jane was telling me earlier that uh, the board is not going to have to lobby for a cap on charter sizes. We actually got as part of this agreement, now we'll see how it plays out. We got a commitment from the superintendent and one of the key board members, Richard Vladovic, who has been sort of a middle force on the board. We got a commitment from them as part of this agreement to bring a motion to the school board to call on the state of California to cap charter school growth in Los Angeles. We talked to Gavin Newsom about this over the weekend as we were developing this. The superintendent, the mayor, and I talked to him, said this is coming. You know, if it passes L.A., we want it to be taken seriously. Uh, he agreed he, he will take it seriously. He campaigned on some regulation of charter schools. So we're very excited about that. That's a pretty big deal as well. The other thing that that came out of this that is not a typical contract issue is that Mayor Garcetti agreed to uh, endorse the Schools and Communities First initiative, uh, which is the first frontal challenge to Proposition 13 in 40 years, which is being driven by California calls, uh, but that UTLA has been on the steering committee of for the last four years. So having Eric Garcetti endorse 
Uh, that challenge to close the corporate loophole within Proposition 13 is another significant win coming out of this agreement. I'm speaking with Alex Caputo Pearl, president of United Teachers Los Angeles. Yeah, of course, now the answer, the question always is, how is the city going to pay for it? You mentioned Prop 13, so there's a the cap on property tax revenues. They always love to plead poverty. So uh, what about the financing issue? We were able to challenge the district on its finances. There, there was and is money here within LAUSD that is now going towards this class size reduction, librarians, nurses, counselors. We did do a lot of discussion over the weekend of building together with the school district, the mayor, the governor, the speaker of the assembly. We had a number of conversations over the weekend as we were trying to hammer this out around support for this Schools and Communities First initiative, which would bring about $5 billion to public schools in California and about $6 billion to other social services that support communities. So that's a great initiative that affects both schools and social services. And then we also talked about some adjustments around special education funding at the state level that would significantly uh, increase money coming into the LA school district, um, as well as some potential state money for uh, community schools, which is which is really our proactive visionary alternative to charter schools. We one of the one of the contract victories we had in in the agreement we signed yesterday was that the the district will invest in. 30 school communities um, for them to go through a community schools transformation process, which means working with parents, community, youth, educators to do an assets assessment and a needs assessment in their community to then create a strategic plan to get funding and support to create that strategic plan and then implement it over the course of years. Usually what comes out of those processes is a commitment to deeper and systematic and funded parent engagement. Uh, broader curriculum. Parents want music, the arts, ethnic studies, workshop, industrial arts, all sorts of stuff. That often comes out of this process. And then a, a key thing that also comes out of it is wraparound services almost always come out of the community schools process, which means locating legal services, health services, dental services, et cetera, at school sites so that schools are really the hubs of communities. So we also talked over the weekend with the governor about the possibility of state funding coming in to support an expansion of that community schools effort beyond 30 schools. So uh, yeah, money's always an issue, but we're situated now, and it was because of the strike, none of this would have happened without a strike, that we're situated now not only locally, but uh, within the state of California to address some of those funding issues. And what about uh, the, you know, we've seen this wave of teacher strike across the country. Did that have any influence on uh, the effectiveness of your strike? Well, our members were absolutely inspired by the West Virginia, Oklahoma, and Arizona strikes. We had at some of our rallies in our escalation, this has been a long contract escalation over 20 months. In some of our events, we featured Arizona teachers who had gone on strike, West Virginia teachers who had gone on strike. So inspiration was a key thing. The other piece of it that was very important is that our strike really was the first of those that was a blue state strike. And I think what it's done is it's opened up a whole different narrative around what's actually happening in public education right now and with unions right now, where we're a deeply blue state dominated by Democrats, and yet 43rd out of 50 among the states in per-pupil funding, 
yet we're one of the states with one of the most permissive sets of charter school laws, which has been used to undermine the public education system. So what we've been able to do, and frankly, the national unions, AFT and NEA, have been very supportive of, of this. And, you know, sometimes historically they can be nervous about challenging Democrats. What we've done is we've actually said we're going to throw down and go on strike against Democrats just as quickly as we will against Republicans. It does seem like there's a, a drift away from uh, you know, charterization and the whole ed reform agenda that the Democratic Party has been uh, obsessed with the last 20 or so years. Um, do, do you see some movement away from that, uh, that agenda? There's some gradual things happening. I mean, one is that, I mean, I'll, I'll just raise up again how important our members and how wonderful our members were in four days of picketing in the pouring rain and then two more days of, of picketing that, like, landed the final blow. And parents have really, our members and our members' connection to parents at the very school site level has led to, over the last, I'd say, two years, uh, a real sharp spike in the understanding of the impact of unregulated growth of charter schools on district neighborhood schools. So that's been a key factor. You've also got increasing research coming out that's just saying places like LA just have too many schools. We've got enough schools. We've got to focus on investing in our existing schools, not on just a, a business model that opens more and more and more charter schools. And even moderate political forces are saying, yeah, that that doesn't make sense to just keep on expanding charter schools when you've got enough existing schools for the demographics within your city. And then third, it was very notable that the California Charter Schools Association, arguably the most important political force in the state of California now, shaping politics more than the oil industry, the pharmaceutical industry and others. It was very noticeable how quiet they were during our strike. They know they can't go up against teachers. When teachers are acting together, connected with parents, the privatization proponents know they can't come after us. Eli Broad didn't whisper a peep against our strike. California Charter Schools Association didn't whisper a peep against our strike. Even their superintendent, who has some of those relationships with the billionaire folks, was very careful about how he spoke about our strike. He obviously was critical of it, but he was very careful about it. So there, there is some opportunity here to make a push against privatization and for investment in our public district schools. I'm speaking with Alex Caputo-Pearl, president of United Teachers Los Angeles. In a few minutes, Jane McAlevey, the writer and organizer, will join in. You also got some language about uh, um, testing, reducing the, uh, the amount of standardized testing. Yeah, and like with any agreement, we didn't get absolutely everything, and the struggle is going to continue, and our members know that. This agreement is going to pass 80 or 85% support, which is great. But we also celebrate the fact that our members' expectations are raised now. Going on strike does that. Seeing immense public support does that. And so some of our members are saying, hey, we didn't get enough. That's a good place to be because the struggle is going to continue. So testing is one of those areas where we wanted a little bit more, but we still got something that, frankly, no one would have been able to predict two years ago, which is we created a task force with the district that has as its stated goal reducing standardized testing by 50%, which is just an enormous, enormous thing when you consider that standardized testing has been crowding out music, crowding out arts, crowding out ethnic studies, 
for years as you've had this testing craze. So uh, that's going to take some more work to make sure that that task force heads in the right direction. But the fact that there's a stated goal on district and union side, and parents will be involved involved in that committee as well, the fact that there's a stated goal of reducing by 50% is is really significant. Doug, um, uh, I've been wanting to let Alex do all this talking and you doing the questions, but I want to just segue in right on that point to say a lot of times when people settle contracts, there's like an overprojection of what they won. And to be perfectly candid in the last, oh, 14 hours, I would say so far that there's an understatement going on here about actually just how much you won. And I want I want to come back to that for a reason, which is this. Part of what was different about this strike and this struggle was the boss fight going into it. And last summer, when Butner was appointed, when this Wall Street guy came in uh, from the L.A. Unified School District, backed by billionaire money, he put out a report called Hard Choices, which, if I recollect, Within two months of the guy being appointed to run the school district, a report was issued that said teachers were actually overpaid. It said that your health care costs were too high. I mean, it literally was almost a definition of insanity from the view of a public member or a teacher. So can you just walk us back to like when we're discussing the race expectations to my favorite words, the race expectations that members have, like, can we walk backwards for six months and talk about what the boss message and what their offer really was coming out of hard choices last summer? Yeah, I think, I think that's a helpful reframe on things. One of the things just by way of answering this, we've got a really incredible team at UTLA, a team of officers who are elected straight out of the classroom a fantastic staff with a bunch of talented organizers and members across the city, member leaders across the city who have just stepped up in an incredible way. And one of the things that's great about the last few years is that we've been driven by work and not by rhetoric and doing work on the ground. And one of the things that that leads to is a certain amount of humility just in, hey, we've got to do this. Do we have chapter chairs at all these schools? Do we have parents in this section of the city? And the focus is so much on the work that sometimes the thing that gets left off the table in the the 23rd and 24th hour of the day is how you're framing stuff. And I think that you're right, Jane, that when you look back at when Butner first came in, he said that teachers were 17% overpaid in Los Angeles and that our health care was 44% too expensive. And so an angle on this entire fight was pushing back against cuts and Butner setting the table through this contract to get cuts soon after. And so the last scrap that he had attached to this, uh, this whole fight to try to get that was tying our pay increase, which ended up being a 6% pay increase that we won, tying that to having new teachers hired from here forward take longer to get lifetime health care, uh, which is clever on his part, right? To, to get our members who are teaching now to turn against people that they don't know who will be teaching, teaching in the future. And even on that one, we beat it back. And our pay increase, our 6%, is just a straight 6% with no contingencies and no conditions. So the fact that the district came out of this with literally no advancement on their agenda of coming after teacher pay and teacher healthcare is a very significant victory that frankly we're probably a little bit a little bit too humble and a little bit too busy to always uh, acknowledge
Yeah. So I just want to re- I want to reiterate a couple more points about this. So for real, there were moments like last year, when we, last August during the strike vote, there were moments when I was interviewing teachers in August and said to them, um, like, if they give you the raise you want, is that going to be enough? No. And I said, what is going to be the most important thing that would get you back in, like from a from a strike? And they said, look, the thing we have to win is eliminating Section 1.5 of the contract. If we win that, we're good. By the way, that's the language that he described earlier about removing a sort of mechanism in the contract that just blew a hole in it and let the boss declare an emergency and increase class size willy nilly and get classrooms up to 40, 45, 46, whatever it was. Um, So not only did they eliminate Section 1.5, which was like absolutely huge, but they went way beyond that. Like you opened this interview by talking about green spaces and making it to that public schools in the system um, don't look like warehouses anymore. And the city's going to come in and start to green them, like the, let alone a reduction of class size. So I just, I want to say that up against my experience of what the boss message and the boss fight was in the summer, when you were taking the strike vote to go from what the boss message was and what the boss's, the employer's goal was in this campaign, which was to damage the union on the way to undoing the public school system, quite frankly, to have come through that boss fight, built organizational structures that held and to achieve, like there's a two page agreement settlement that has so many victories in it, half of which we would have declared that this was a massive victory. And you went well past the minimum standards that I heard most teachers saying that they wanted. And I know you have to leave, Alex, but just one more question for you here. Um, I, I know that teachers in uh, Oakland and Denver are on the verge of striking. Have you been talking to them? Have they been uh, studying your example? Thank you, Jane, for those comments. I think uh, I think uh, what Jane brings up is really important. And, you know, we're going to be really happy to be doing. We're going to set up town halls over the next couple of weeks where we're going out and meeting with our members and parents and community together to really review. I mean, there really are about 30 things that, that we won. And it does take some things to walk through them. So uh, we're going to be doing that just to consolidate things, answer questions, et cetera. We've been working with the Oakland teachers for about about four years now. We formed an organization called the uh, California Alliance for Community Schools. This includes the teacher union locals from Oakland, San Francisco, Fresno, Santa Ana, San Diego, Anaheim, Richmond, San Jose. I hope I didn't forget someone. But, but the major urban locals in uh, California have been meeting for about four years and doing a major part of our push has been to endorse and get on board. And we helped collect the 900,000 signatures that got schools and communities first on the ballot. But another major piece of our work was how do we, if at all possible, coordinate contract campaigns um, and potentially coordinate statewide actions? And Oakland and L.A. ended up lining up pretty well. So they're, in fact, finding right now Oakland is we're in very good touch with them. We've used a lot of the same methodology around contract action teams, although they call them school site organizing squads, which I think I like better. uh, SOS. They came down for our huge march on December 15th on the eve of a strike. We're going up to theirs, uh, you know, that they'll do on the eve of their strike. We're both doing Art Build, which is this incredible local and national artist uh, piece of getting students, parents, teachers involved in making art together before huge uh, rallies. 
So we've really done a lot of joint work and Oakland teachers going on strike, which I think they are going to be forced to, uh, is going to send a double message, a doubling down on the message to the governor, to the privatization movement, and to the broader the broader nation that Blue State California is in a struggle for the existence of public education, and we're not going to let Democrats destroy it in just the same way Republicans are in other states. Those are Alex Caputo-Pearl, president of United Teachers Los Angeles, and Jane McAlevey, the writer and organizer. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of Francois Couperin's Les Fasses de la Grande Menestrandise, performed by Olivier Beaumont, and excuse my French. And now we'll hear from Jane McAlevey, the organizer and writer. She's the author of Raising Expectations and No Shortcuts. Her article, The Strike as the Ultimate Structure Test, can be found on the Catalyst magazine website. What can we learn from this strike for broader national application? Man, there are so many things that we can learn from this strike, including uh, one, that there are a set of lessons that we've known in our movement for a very long time about what it takes to run a real strike. In fact, the piece that I did in Catalyst, right, that Jacobin re-ran last week, the article called um, The Strike is the Ultimate Structure Test, uh, lays out like a lot of basic know-how that serious organizers have had since, by the way, the 1930s, right? The, The point of me doing a book review in 2019 of a book that was finished in 1950, but actually uh, Steuben, who wrote the book, began writing in the 30s when he was an organizer during the CIO slash CP era, is that there are, in fact, a set of truisms about what it takes to build a really strong rank and file organization. Um, And it doesn't take having a fantasy that just because you think people are pissed off, they're going to rise up and have the kind of level of organization that they built here in Los Angeles. So the first thing is, Uh, There's a set of skills that organizers have. And there's a there's a dilemma in our progressive movement in the United States, certainly, but also I would say writ large, like when I'm in Europe and, you know, working with folks that this there's there's this idea that we don't need full time staff. And there's an idea that we don't need like sometimes there's the demonization by progressives of, of the concept of like, quote unquote, it's always said this way, the professional staff. And true enough, by the way, um, in a lot of unions in the United States, I'll just speak to the United States, although I can say it's true about Europe, too. Now, true enough, there are plenty of unions where the staff, quite frankly, play a a very unhelpful role, if not a downright bad role in terms of holding back the rank and file members. But that's 
That's one scenario. The scenario by which you can turn out 60,000 people a day in the pouring rain and you can report in numbers and know exactly what's happening school across 900 schools, picket line by picket line, has to do with the most fundamental things that you and I have talked about before, which is, have you done real organic leader identification? They have here. It was so fun yesterday listening to the members reporting back on the contract victory. I sat in on some of the the long discussions that took place when members were coming off the picket lines and they were reading the draft agreement. And people were saying to me, like, the key to the key to getting really great chapter chairs in all the schools was that they would say, like, who's already who's writing curriculum in your schools right now? Like, there's a way we know how to find who are the natural really talented leaders, school by school, hospital by hospital, in my case, et cetera. And you have to run a series of structure tests. And when Alex mentioned that they went for a big dues increase shortly after the what was called the union power slate, um, which is the literally the electoral, like the, the, the candidate slate from which Alex Caputo Pearl um, emerged as the president of the union, along with a, another, a bunch of really terrific leaders here, you know, out of the classroom. Uh, that, you know, one of the first things they did to test whether or not the rank and file membership was really united together behind a bold vision of the union was to run a massive dues increase, um, which is something that we did when I was, you know, in Las Vegas too many years ago, like certainly a really good threshold test of are the rank and file engaged? How do they feel right now about their own organization is to run a big dues increase. And they had an amazing result from a really big dues increase. So, but they went from that, they then rolled into, I'm going to count it later with the organizing director here, but I think that they've done seven significant, what I would call structure tests, what I wrote about in the Catalyst slash um, Jacobin piece, which of course is what I write about in both the books that you've talked to me about in the past. It's like, there are serious methods. And when we follow them, we meaning a, a progressive radical labor movement, we win. That's the message that's coming out of the amazing strike. It was like a master class. It was so well done here. And the, the organizing department was built, um, quite frankly, by organizers trained in the same tradition that I was trained in. I didn't invent this stuff. I'm the first to say it all the time. We all were trained by the same people in, who come out of the old 1199. Not exclusively, but like there are a set of truisms. When we follow them, we win. And that's a very important message, I think, for the broader progressive movement. That term, structure test, I presume that means a way of finding out if you got the members with you? Yeah. I mean, it, it really means, do, do the members own the organization? Do the members literally understand that this is their organization and that without them participating at incredibly high levels, like, and I'm talking about no less than 90%. In the United States, we never assume that people are ready to really have a strike unless they're participating and not just once, but in multiple structure tests, meaning uh, a supermajority petition, things that let us test, are we at 90% capacity across every worksite, in this case, across every school? So they had to get to the point where they knew that the rank and file owned the union so much that they were at no less than 90% across 900 schools. They had to use every structure test. So let's just take one of them. Um, doing a majority petition a couple of years ago, meaning you want to get a majority of people to sign a petition, literally hand sign a petition, you know, that says we are going to demand smaller class sizes in our contract. And you move that out across 900 schools and you give it a timeline, let's say five days. And then at the end of five days, you can literally do a straight up assessment of 
these 35 schools sent none in. Okay, well, we have a problem in these 35 schools, right? Like there's no one engaging um, with their own organization. You know, these 400 schools sent back 100% of signatures from their school in three days. Okay, hey, we don't have to worry about those schools. They're in great shape. And what structure tests do, which they methodically did leading up to this amazing strike, was they did a lot of them because that is exactly how you learn to prioritize where do the rank and file teacher leaders and the staff organizers together collectively need to focus their energy to make sure that when the rubber hits the road in a big strike, the rank and file members are participating upwards of 90 or 95 percent. That's what real organizing really is. What about public involvement? Now, unions have uh, suffered many blows to their, their image, that they look like self-interested organizations, not uh, really concerned with the level of public services and more concerned with their own wages and benefits. How important uh, is it to get the public on your side for something like this to succeed? It's literally life or death. In a strike like this, in the healthcare sector, um, in the education sector, I mean, I would argue, frankly, in every sector. I mean, and I, I even want to give a nod to the communication workers during the Verizon strike a couple of years ago, right? It's a little harder, I think, for cable operators than it is for teachers or nurses to build the kind of community infrastructure that you need. But every union needs to understand that when we're at the level of what I call the boss war that we're at in the United States, and they're at it with Macron in France, they're at it with the Tories in the United Kingdom, they're at it with the Swedish Democrats, you know, winning 17% in Sweden. I mean, the boss fight is going global at this point. So when you have a dominating narrative being driven, by both Democrats and Republicans, by the super wealthy elite that is that has been attempting to decimate uh, the image of unions for decades strong now. If you don't do the hard spade work and do it systematically on the front end way before your strike begins and way before just your struggle begins, if you're going into a, a contract struggle, if you haven't done the hard work to relate directly and connect your members to their own communities and built the kind of organization that's going to stand up and support you when you walk out, you are unlikely to win. And I want to go right to that. In both Chicago, during the amazing 2012 Chicago Teachers Union strike that really kicks off a lot of this, and also here in Los Angeles, in both these cities, interestingly, it's in the two states, Illinois and California, 2012-2019, where the teachers unions are going up against the Democratic sort of stronghold, right? Chicago, Democratic City, Los Angeles, Democratic City, states that are much more democratic than the sort of red for ed, the, the six strikes that we saw in the more conservative right to work states um, last year, which were amazing, but very different than this. It's, it's, it's in the cities controlled by Democrats where the employers were out to kill the unions because that was a way for them to privatize the system to move in the privatizers. So what they had to do to win over the public was second to none in both Chicago and Los Angeles, and the leadership knew it. Karen Lewis, in, in the case of Chicago, Alex Caputo-Pearl, in the case of Los Angeles, knew that they had to educate the entire city. They had to educate the public about why the strike mattered, what the issues were in the strike. And this morning, waking up in a hotel in Los Angeles um, at about 5 a.m., I literally said to the guy at the hotel, hey, did you hear that, the, you know, the teachers won? And the first thing that this hotel worker looked at me and said was, it's amazing. I hear that they want a nurse for every school, guidance counselors and school librarians. That is very telling. 
about what they just did in the city. And it was just like when I was riding public transportation in Chicago, when I went in to write the book chapter about the Chicago teacher strike, and I had on a CTU t-shirt. And literally people on the buses were coming up to talk to me about how the strike changed their lives and their own view of the power of the working class in their city. And these were not teachers. Same thing's happening in Los Angeles. The education workers, because they're teachers, are teaching all of us and the public in their cities what it takes to win and what and what's at stake with austerity. I'm speaking with the union organizer and writer Jane McAlevey. And now what can we think about the fact that teachers and nurses who you've worked a lot with are are acting like the vanguard of the working class in the United States now. Does, what, what does that mean in the broad uh, scheme of things? First of all, it's nothing more exciting to me um, than watching. Look, these are mostly females, right? Mostly women-led professions. And there's a whole lot, if not a majority, of women of color um, at the leadership, both in healthcare and in education. It's so unbelievably important that we're building a women-led, people of color women-led trade union movement in this moment is super, super important. And I think it's a different kind of movement. And I think you see this nat- this much more natural organic connection to the community and people understanding, like in Los Angeles, I honestly don't believe that the mayor, Garcetti, would have intervened in the strike um, had he not seen the public being brought along by a mostly female workforce who deeply understands that there is no separation between what matters to them in their contract at work and what matters to them when they punch the clock and go home. This struggle was about racial justice. They brought racial justice front and center into it. One of the many things that we didn't talk about or that Alex didn't have time to talk about, I can't even believe he was coherent, he hasn't slept in days, um, is that they, they won an end to random searches um, in a pilot number of schools. Um, they're extending to 28 schools and they're phasing in more of them. We're like, that you just can't do random searches anymore on the students. So they built a movement that brought in housing, the environment, racial justice issues. Like they literally, the immigrant defense fund that they won, they won this like dedicated hotline with attorneys at it for immigrant families. That's like for the families because of the ICE raids. So I think what women do differently than men is we connect the workplace and the non-workplace issues. That's what a woman-led labor movement is going to do. And they're the two sectors. But the reason they're driving privatization so hard is because we know they can't offshore, right? They can't move the hospital to China. They can't move the school to Myanmar or to China. So instead, the neoliberals have set out to decimate the teachers unions and then to hold it so that the healthcare, the healthcare sector, most people probably don't understand in the United States, that the vast majority, the vast majority, I want to say this like four times, the vast majority of nurses and hospital workers in the United States are not yet in a union and never have been, unlike teachers, where the majority actually are, right? So in the case of the teachers, it's about de-unionizing. They have to privatize the system to break the teachers' unions, to break public institutions, um, to make more money off education and literally just break the labor movement. In the case of healthcare and my life as a healthcare organizer, what we were doing you know, was winning new organizing campaigns at a record pace. That's hard to do right now because the laws are stacked against us. But so if we, I mean, I frequently have said to people, if we just focus on organizing nurses, and hospital workers in the healthcare sector in the United States, we could damn near come close to getting us back to the private sector density we had at the heyday of the labor movement. If we can hold the education sector, and then in the, because it's the private sector, and again, for anyone listening who's not from the United States, like 
Healthcare is the private sector in, in the United States. So if we focus on organizing the 5 million nurses who are not yet in unions, the additional 5 million hospital workers who are not yet in unions, it's like 10 million people out there um, in the U.S. alone who are not yet union and who are building a different kind of labor movement because they deeply understand, in the case of nurses and hospital workers, the patients coming in are sick and ill, and the nurses and the healthcare workers in general like understand that their patients are getting sicker because they're poor. And so they're just naturally compelled to fight poverty. It's the same with the education sector and the teachers. They see what their students, what poverty is doing to their students day in and day out. And, the, and a women-led movement connects um, the issues in ways that, frankly, we just haven't seen in, this con- in the United States in 40 or 50 years. And I'll talk a bit about um, teachers and nurses. They're not low-paid workers. They generally have degrees, sometimes more, several degrees. A lot of public attention has been paid to you know, organizing fast food workers, minimum wage workers. What about that focus? Is it teachers and nurses have some social power and social prestige? Fast food workers don't have much. Is, is the attention paid to fast food workers uh, misplaced? Look, I would say I don't know that it's I don't know that it's misplaced, although. I think that the amount I think that if we put the amount of look, I think if we put the amount of resources, if the union that's been backing all the fast food work and those workers do deserve more dignity. Right. So it's unfortunate that they don't have the social power of a nurse or you know, healthcare worker or a teacher. They certainly deserve way more dignity than than they get um, in this country. But the fact of the matter is we're in a fight over power. And so if as a labor movement, we need to prioritize what is it that we're going to do that's actually going to build power, then we need to think very carefully about the sectors of the economy in which we're plowing the biggest resources. And that's part of the argument I made at the end of No Shortcuts is that healthcare and education can't be shipped out to China. Are women led? Are people of color led? Are producing, are producing a different kind of movement around them? And, you know, what one massive strike just did in Los Angeles compared to you know, years of the, the fighting around the fast food stuff, it's just, it's night and day. And so it's not that, it's not that the fast food workers aren't important. I would, ne- you know, not in a million years uh, do I believe that. But I believe if you look at the history and part of what I focus on in both the Steuben Review, but also in, in especially in No Shortcuts, is trying to give people the history lesson back to the 1930s. In the 1930s, the, the smarter labor movement of the 1930s in the United States was not equally focused on all workers, never. They had something called the basic industries. They understood the strategy to build power. And my argument today is that we need to do the very same thing. We need to have a power analysis for the entire country. And we need to get clear that to build the kind of power required to reverse the the, the degradation of the entire country at this point um, by the boss war out of the White House we need to get much more focused on a handful of strategic sectors and dig in and dig in hard. And that inc- that's included in that, by the way, is the entire like supply chain and logistics sector, right? From Amazon. I mean, if you did, if we did Amazon, healthcare, and education, we'd retake the country seriously. How would you go about organizing a place like Amazon? Um, I would I would go about it um, in the very same way that they just built the union uh, back to the kind of power they did here. You would do warehousing. And then the supply chain sector, right? So the postal workers, EPS, there's an amazing, I, I posted a supply chain map and I've been staring at a website looking at the how the whole supply chain system works for Amazon. And there is no question 
that a real approach to organizing from the outside in, bottom up, neighborhood by neighborhood, community by community, in the key pl- in the key places where the warehouses exist, partnered with the drivers, the pilots, like you know what workers need to believe, what workers need to take a leap of faith, which they just did here in Los Angeles, is that there's what we call a credible plan to win. I don't think in this country that we've offered up a credible plan to win to Amazon workers yet. I just don't believe, I haven't seen it yet. So I I think workers are really, really smart. Like I, I think part of what separates real organizing from not real organizing is that real organizers, that we seriously wake up in the morning believing that workers are smart, that they're intelligent, and that faced with good choices, good strategic choices, they actually get the difference between door A, B, and C, and they will walk through a really smart plan and they will help own it and shape it and build it. And that is not something that we have offered up yet. We just haven't in terms of going after Amazon. So the the what Alex started off with, you know, good old fashioned organizing, bottom up, we would strategically map the most important of the warehouses. We'd strategically map where the choke points are about how to slow them down. We'd, I mean, there'd be a series of steps you would make in doing a power structure analysis of Amazon. And then you'd have to put really serious, like the kind of money that's gone into the fast food campaign, frankly, needs to go in to a bottom up organizing approach uh, to take Amazon. And that's, it's just not happened yet. And uh, we're just about out of time, but, you know, uh, Amazon is coming to Long Island City. An amazing opportunity. What advice would you offer to the welcoming committee? The welcoming committee needs to literally make Amazon not allowed to function in New York until there's a broad agreement that not just the workers in New York, but that Amazon, like Jeff Bezos and Amazon need to be taught a lesson by New York. And the lesson has to be, you're not going to function and make money and, and contribute to gentrification and destroy this city without this company going union. And it's going to be a hell of a fight. And I'm having a re- I'm really excited at the prospects of a New York City-based movement taking on Bezos in a way that he has yet to be taken on. And it's urgent. There's like nothing more important that people could be doing, in my opinion, right now in the short term in New York than actually seeing the opportunity of taking that subsidy, ripping it away um, and making the place ungovernable unless and until that man learns that he's going to go union. I was the writer and organizer, Jane McAlevey. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Part of the Union, a 1973 song by the Straubs. Initially thought to be satirical, it was taken up by British unions, and the band later said it was meant to be celebratory. That's the spirit I'll take it in. Till next week, bye. As a union man, I'm wise So the lies of the company spies And I don't get fooled by the factory rules Cause I always read between the lines And I always get my way If I strike for higher pay When I show my card to the Scotland Yard And this is what I say Oh